Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host will never deny digging into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Oh, Matt, I have been laid low. I have been felled. Uh, 60 episodes or so ago, I did this funny bit where I said I needed a new butthole. Here's the thing. I have done something to my lower back slash ass in my running, and it hurts all the time. That's not good, my friend. No, it's not. Uh, Apparently, it's uh, I went to the... It's so bad. I went to the doctor yesterday of all places. And uh turns out there's some kind of inflammation. I got in a hip joint and uh, they got me on some steroids, hoping it's going to calm it all down. But uh my ass quite literally hurts. And you don't really think about your ass because it it's just there for you. Right. You know, it just it's there. It doesn't bother you. Uh, But it, when it bothers you, it bothers you all the time. Standing, sitting, walking, running. If I get in the the best, most perfect position in bed, I can pretend I don't have an ass anymore. But I'm I'm managing. I'm managing that. That just plain sucks. No, I'm I'm actually doing all right. I'm okay. doing all right. I'm I'm well good. So shortly before we began recording tonight, I just returned from the movies and. I want to make a statement that I do not believe to be a controversial statement. I believe it's a statement that you will agree with me entirely on, as will everyone who has been our guests, and I would like to believe all of our listeners. Ooh, okay. This is an anti-Nazi podcast. Oh, shit. Did you just go see Sisu? I did indeed. Yes, isn't that the greatest fucking movie that ever existed? You know, the only thing that could have been made, made it better was more gory Nazi death. But oh, that, but it's it's such a tight ninety minutes. I like know. It's, it's an orgasm of violence. It is just, just perfect. It was beautifully done. Beautifully oh. done. Ah, oh, oh, this warms my heart. I'm so glad that oh, like, it, we can come on tonight and talk about this movie. It has been on my list. And it was playing on the large format Dolby screen. So big screen, incredible Dolby surround sound. Oh, Oh. I knew that come Friday, Guardians of the Galaxy was going to come out and that Dolby screen was going to something else. So it's like, all right, well, Monday night is WMQ. Tuesday night, Laura and I are going out. Thursday night is game night. Wednesday night is Bat Chat, but there's a five o'clock show. So I can, with trailers and such, it'll be done at seven. Give me enough time to eat, finish some reading if I need to, and see this freaking movie. What a good decision you made there. Unlike the people at Lionsgate, who apparently only distributed this thing to like a thousand screens. Which is insane. Where I live, Huntsville... North Alabama. I, I don't believe it's playing up here. I only got a chance to see it because I happened to be driving through Birmingham. So it's it's only in you know your larger cities. It's surprising. 
I am a, you know, coastal elite in, you know, the uh, Northeast. So right outside of Philadelphia. So they they always they put pretty much everything in the theater here in Cherry Hill. And look, if if you're on the fence about this, you're listening to this, do yourself a favor, go watch the trailer, and you're like, okay, the trailer's just a tease. There's no way they could keep this up for 90 minutes. Oh, they do. They do. It is 90 straight minutes of fucking killing Nazis. And the beautiful thing is, though, it's 90 minutes. It's 65 minutes of killing Nazis, and then 25 minutes of this slow Hence, build up to the next scene of brutally killing Nazis. Ah. Brutal. Brutally killing Nazis. As someone of Jewish heritage living in the year of our Lord, 2023, there is a visceral satisfaction in watching Nazis get murdered. Like I, I tweeted right after I saw it. Finally, somebody had the courage to make Frankenstein versus the Nazis. <laughs> See, I've viewed him as a Draugr, Scandinavian zombie creatures that fight at the behest of Gila, like these undead, unstoppable Norse warriors risen from the dead. Frankenstein's good too, but I, I went with the local reference. I was just like, yeah, he's just this Draugr. He's like, yeah, just full of nothing but rage and murder. Man just wanted his gold. Yeah, yeah, he worked hard for his gold. He won his gold, his dog. Russians already took everything else from him, but she had to come along and fuck with his gold. And now he's going to murder every one of you. Except for the ones that he leaves for the women that they had abused to wipe out, which, <laughs> good. <laughs> They're all in hell. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the, the reference to Koshe the Deathless. It's like, oh, yes, that is a favorite Russian folktale. Oh, so good. So good. I know by the time this episode drops, it will probably not be in theaters, but it will be on demand soon. It will be streaming soon, and it is well worth your 90 minutes. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, w watch it at home. Watch it at the theater if you can. Watch it twice. I'm, I, I can't wait to watch it again. Also, this week... I did not see any of the big releases. I saw two smaller releases. I saw Sisu. And now for something completely different. Polite Society. Hmm. Bend It Like Beckham meets Harriet the Spy meets Gattaca. Okay. The Gattaca, the, the last bit, only you would not get any of that from the trailer. It is a weird, wild twist. But it's got this touch of i don't know if pakistani film has a blank wood i don't want to call it bollywood because likening something pakistani something indian is deeply offensive the fighting words yeah exactly but it has that sort of heightened reality you'd get out of a bollywood film with a relationship you know a sister's comedy dramedy and yeah, it's just this weird, wild little indie movie from England that I saw a trailer for and I was like, huh, that looks weird. And the evil mother of the skeevy guy was the main villain on the Ms. Marvel TV series, who I like. Sure, I'll give this a shot. Again, 144, hour 44 minutes. You come in below two hours, 
I'm much more willing to give a movie that I'm unsure of a shot if it's less than two hours. That's a dying genre of uh, of movies these days. I might be done with MCU stuff. I'm just kind of exhausted by them at this point. But I got to say, uh, Dial of Destiny, next uh, Mission Impossible, going to be a fun summer. It is. Oh, yeah. We are recording two days before Guardians, three days before Free Comic Book Day. Guardians, a introducing Adam Warlock, a favorite Marvel character of mine. So I am cautiously optimistic. But also, I will be going with my good friends from Dewey's Comic City, the comic shop that I worked at for 15 years. We will be going after Free Comic Book Day. So... Regardless of what the movie is, it is going to be a pleasant experience for me. Yes. And really, that's that's all you can hope for uh, for an MCU film at this point. Just just go in and having a good time. Absolutely. I hope DC can learn that lesson and give us a few more movies that are a good time. Because, listen, I love Birds of Prey. I love The Suicide Squad. They were fun, crazy movies. But they neither of them felt like Marvel movies. They felt like their own no. thing. And do that. Don't try to, to do a tone for all your movies. Everything can be something different. They all don't have to be the same thing. Give one of them to Sam Raimi. Yeah. See what happens. Let Sam Raimi do Phantom Stranger or The Spectre. Ooh, the Spectre. Yeah, give him the Spectre. Let him do the, the horrible, macabre Spectre deaths. That would kick ass. But speaking of everything being a little different, aha, segue. Aha, it's time for another Elseworlds episode. Indeed it is. This week, we're reading three Elseworlds based on classic horror stories. The first is The Doom That Came to Gotham. This is Batman, The Doom That Came to Gotham, numbers one to three. The writers are Mike Mignola and Richard Pace, with pencils by Troy Nixie, inks by Doug Janke, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Bill Oakley, and edited by Mike Carlin. The cover dates are November of the year 2000 to January 2001. Returning to Gotham after 20 years, Bruce Wayne and his wards have brought something back with them. Something unnameable and unknowable. An eldritch horror worshipped by a mysterious cult that will bring about Gotham's downfall. And only by learning of the city's past can Batman save it. For those of you who are Patreon backers, you have already heard me and Will talk about the animated adaptation that dropped about a month and a half ago as this episode is dropping. Well, you don't know that they've heard it. We don't know that they listened to it. You have it available for those of you who back us at the Tim Drake level or higher. You could listen to it right now. Yes. $5 a month. You can come on in and listen to that and 15 or 16 other bonus episodes plus some bonus scenes and stuff that I've thrown up there. But nonetheless, Some of you, hopefully, have heard us talk about the animated adaptation of The Doom That Came to Gotham. As Will said in that episode, this is the first time we've done something on the show, the bonus shows, 
that he hadn't read the source material for first and a book I haven't read since it first came out in what was really the dying gasp of Elseworlds at its biggest. This is one of the final of the classic prestige format Elseworlds because they stopped doing those around 2000, 2001. There weren't a lot. This might be the last, if not one of the very last of that format of Elseworlds. And and for those of you who don't know the history, like this used to almost be a label unto itself. They were branded, right? You had the little Elseworlds logo. Wasn't too fancy, right? But it was there. It was set aside as a separate and distinct thing. Totally doesn't exist anymore. No, now, especially now that the multiverse has been reestablished, what was in Elseworlds is now just another world in the multiverse. Yeah, just going back and looking at the lists of Elseworlds, there are half a dozen or so after this, and most of them are either full-on hardcover books like Nine Lives or Detective 27 or floppies, three or four issue normal comic miniseries. While when Elseworlds first came out, they were all prestige format. So this is the final gasp of this particular format, I believe. Gotham Noir was 01, so that might be the last one. At least of Batman. I have misspoken because there is one of the biggest, which came out in prestige formats, was right there. Because Red Sun was 03. That might be sort of it. There was a couple of Justice League ones in 01 and 02 as well, interestingly. I would not have thought Red Sun being so relatively late. Yeah, Red Sun was right at the end of Elseworlds. Huh. Basically spans uh, Batman Dracula to Red Sun. The first officially branded Elseworlds was Holy Terror. <laughs> what a way to launch your imprint. Holy Terror. Yeah, yeah that, uh, that's got to be branded with something else, because otherwise young young Matt uh, Lazowitz might pick it up and think it's a regular Batman comic. It, it seems like 04 is when the last branded Elseworlds came out. Yeah, it was uh, a Batman one-shot, double-sized one-shot that was, a, I believe, a floppy. An OGN about Superman landing in the English countryside, written by John Cleese. So it's... True Brit. Yep, True Brit. A full-on send-up. Another nail, the sequel to The Nail. And the... Yeah, those are the last three official Elseworlds. Uh, I haven't read True Brit, but I hear it's not very good. Yeah, I recently found it at a used bookstore. So it is on my to-read pile. But by pile, I mean piles. So it's not a bat book, so I doubt I will get to it anytime soon. <laughs> because the way there's many things I would sooner read, and you can't, you literally can't pay me to read it because it's not a Batman book. Aha! But um, we are here to talk about the doom that came to Gotham. I'll say one thing here at the beginning that I think is interesting. So when we were talking about this on the bonus show, uh, Matt made one of his rare 
rare, ever so infrequent missteps when giving the credits. Uh, I believe you you listed uh, Pace, the the artist, most usually known as an artist, uh, as the artist. You, he's a co-writer in the collected version that I picked up. The newly collected version, the tie-in for the animated film, it has got some of his pages. Like apparently, the plan was for Pace to do the art here. For whatever reason, you know, man probably got busy. And I'll say, got one, two, three, four, five of his pages. It is a very, very different look. And I'm not sure the book would have worked as well because he is much more realistic. It would have been interesting, but I don't know if it would have been quite as visually successful. Yeah. Troy Nixie is an artist much more in Mignola's school. Not a Mignola clone. He has a very different style, but his weird anatomy and use of shadow and things is very much in Mignola's oeuvre. Or compatible. Close to Mignola's oeuvre. Yes, compatible to it. So I think it does help this book work with what Mignola and Pace are laying down when it comes to the story, which is basically Batman versus Cthulhu in the 1920s. But not Cthulhu, as you told me on the bonus episode. Right. He is Yosotha, which is just another name for an eldritch thing, which I don't know why when you're doing it, you just don't say Cthulhu because there's no copyright on any of the Cthulhu stuff. It was, it's pu- been public domain from the beginning. Lovecraft never registered trademarks or copyright on any of his stuff. So you could just say Cthulhu or any of the other eldritch beasties. So when does uh, Jay Gatsu make his first DC Comics appearance as a character now in the public domain? Maybe he'll appear in an upcoming arc of Fables. Put him in with all of the other public domain creatures in Fables. This, of the three stories tonight, definitely uses the most characters out of the Bat mythos, but is not as bad as some of the Elseworlds we've read, where it's just packed to the gills with wink-wink cameos. Some of the dialogue here gets a little too wink-winky. Yes. One of the last times I think we see, I think it's Dick, he says, Ah, I'm coming for you, Mr. Freeze. Yeah. Uh, when we when we have a guy who hasn't been identified as Mr. Freeze the entire time. And they do or a good another... job in the film adaptation of never dropping that name. It's just, you kind of figure, oh, he's Mr. Freeze. Yeah, like, you, you don't want to put a hat on a hat with these things. And uh, I'm sure we will eventually get to the biggest and best improvement that the film made uh, here on the book. There are two that come to mind, and we will definitely get to both of them. As with anything eldritch, this is high weird. And oh, yeah. It also, coming out in 2000 and 2001, reading it now, in 2023, whenever you deal with eldritch, you have to reckon with the history of racism with the men who created this genre. Doesn't H.P. Feel... Lovecraft, big piece of shit. Oh, yeah. 
the other founding fathers, there are other guys who wrote a lot of those early stories. I believe they all were similarly awful. But 2000, 2001, we weren't there. This is played pretty straight, up to and including the use of Ra's al Ghul and Talia as the ones who are summoning uh, Yog Sothoth and putting the non-white characters as the ones who are summoning the Eldritch Horror kind of plays right into the stuff that Lovecraft was doing. I am absolutely not saying that Mignola, Pace, or anyone involved shares those horrible, horrible racist ideologies. I think Rachel Ghoul works because he's Rachel Ghoul. He's immortal. He has mystical stuff in his background. So logically, if you're going to have somebody summoning an eldritch beast, you'd work with Rachel Ghoul. But if you're reckoning with the history of the racism in eldritch literature, putting Raish and Talia in that position in the story is uncomfortable. Yeah, the story very much implicates the founding fathers of Gotham. And you could have easily done it where it's a bunch of these rich white guys who are summoning the horrors into the world and using the horrors to exploit the labor. And you could you could have easily done like a you know, like a class warfare type story with this. You absolutely could have, but instead we got crazy monsters. Hey, sometimes you just got to have crazy monsters. And it looks good. Yeah, absolutely. I presume, again, this collected edition that I'm uh, looking at reissued, I, I feel like it's been touched up. But, you know, it's only 20 years old. It might not have been. Since this was presented in prestige format, this was presented on high gloss in square bound. So it might be a straight reproduction. I did not dig out my single issues. I also read from that recent re-release. So so do you want to get your particular quibble out of the way? It's more than a quibble, but you yeah. you came you came hard at this so yeah yeah you know sometimes i i'm content to allow the content to bubble up on the show but sometimes when something so odd or weird or stupid happens and i have to i have to talk to matt immediately so this batman is born basically out of the the cult because we have uh, oliver queen's father stabs thomas and martha intellectually i can understand oh this is not a batman who is against guns because he doesn't have gun the gun as part of his early trauma intellectually i can understand that but it is so fucking jarring to see batman just pull out what looks to be a nine millimeter handgun uh and then just start shooting it's only in one scene so I feel like a good editor, and this is what they did in the film, a good editor would have seen that and be like, we probably need to lose that. Again, intellectually, you can justify it. The The Waynes in this world were stabbed to death, not shot. Batman's not going to have that visceral reaction to guns. But anytime you pull out a gun, it is to kill. A gun is not to subdue. A gun is not to uh, do anything but kill. And I think viscerally, Bruce would know that and be opposed to it. And from that storytelling standpoint, I didn't like it. And then visually, it just did not seem to fit with the rest of this kind of motif and time period because it looked 
just like a nine millimeter handgun. I am not a gun weirdo, but visually it didn't look right to me. I agree on all of your points. I was willing, I was, wasn't sure if you were going to go there because I was going to play devil's advocate about, you know, well, they were stabbed. So he doesn't necessarily have the aversion to firearms, but it's still, yeah. If he has no problem with guns, why does he only use them in the one scene? Exactly. Get them, get a big old friggin' rifle. Because yes, he has the magic arrows that Oliver left him, but who knows what else is waiting for him in the end. He could have also, he could have had the three match cars. Then Oliver was a big game hunter. He could have, I'm sure, grabbed Oliver's big old blunderbuss and gone through with that as well. But they don't go there. And it just seemed odd that's like, okay, for this one scene, he's going to use a gun. Yeah. It's too antithetical to Batman as we know him. And it doesn't contribute anything to the story. Really should have been cut. I will say the other improvement that i felt the film made was the four men who were responsible for planting the seeds of the eldritch nightmare in gotham were thomas wayne robert queen kirk langstrom's ancestor and some dude some dude a in the movie they replaced some dude with oswald cobblepot which good but when bruce in the end communes with the spirit of one of the conspirators in the book it's some dude a character that we uh, saw professor professor somebody or other Partface. yeah his name is not important because he is not an established character in the canon he has no real connection to bruce bruce interacted with him on the phone for like 30 seconds right before he was murdered by talia in the film, it's the spirit of his father he speaks to, which is... In hell. In hell. It is a much better, much more resonant scene when it is someone that Bruce has some real connection to. One thing that the film changed that I think did not work for it is the scenes of Oliver Queen as like a sad drunk. Yeah, I don't necessarily know why they did that here he's just sort of a lay seemingly a layabout and he was a big game hunter and yeah i mean you see the trophies in the movie but here he's not so obviously a loser and you'd think if he knows all this is coming and is expecting it because he's the one who believes that the sins of his father will allow him to be the one to stop the rise of Yoksotha. And instead, the spirits of the dead members of this conspiracy have chosen Bruce. But if he knows this is coming, you'd think he wouldn't be drunk all the time because he's going to have to be sober to fight whatever things these demons send after him. And the film makes the point that it's because of the guilt. Like, he feels guilty because his father killed the Waynes. But it just comes off as so sad and pathetic. And then we get that whole shift in the film where, oh, he's he's in this crusader garb and now he's ready to go out and fight demons. Like it's it's a very jarring change. In the book, it's much more believable as, oh, big game hunter. Oh, turns out he's got this deeper connection and, you know, he's he's ready to fight the demons. I get it now. Regardless of which version, both 
Dick Grayson and Jason Todd go out real fast. Oh yeah, yeah. They make most of their noise out uh, in Antarctica, and then they just get snuffed out real quick on the boat. I'm gonna say this now about all three stories tonight. Surprised and not unpleasantly that not one of these three Elseworlds has a version of the Joker in it. No. And listen, I love the Joker. I love a good Joker story. But right now in comics, we're at a point of peak Joker. We had a choice between two Joker books this week to cover for the print column, and we decided to cover neither of them because I think we're just kind of, we're Jokered out. We need to retire the Joker for a year. Give us a solid year with no mainstream Joker stories. He can pop up in, you know, a bat scoop or in a, an audio adventures story, maybe a something in those big chunky DC anthology things that they do every quarter seasonal themed anthologies. But We've had nonstop Joker for three-ish years now, appearing every month between the Joker War, the story leading into Joker War, the Tiny and Joker series, and now the Rosenberg Joker series. In the months in between the Rosenberg Joker series and the Tiny and one, I'm pretty sure he was showing up somewhere. Have you read uh, 135 yet? I have not. Ah, I'm not, we, I, we, we will have some things to talk about. After work, I went to see Sisu. So <laughs> <laughs> I will read it in the morning, metaphorically with my coffee, with my iced tea. Some of us didn't have anything to do today, so they got all of their reading done early. Ah. The joys of being on summer break. Lucky you. I know I get like three weeks and then it's back to uh, back to summer school. I think aside from the points that we we've already brought up, the animated movie is just a straight like retelling of this story. It is very, very close to this minor details here and there, a shifted scene. The other biggest change is that Tim Drake is in this and they replace him with Cassandra Kane in the movie. But their roles are almost identical. It's just they transpose the characters. Art highlight for me for this is Harvey Dent's evolution into this misshapen monster that is literally the portal that they are using to summon this eldritch beast. It's fucked up. Yeah, it's it really fucked up. And then Bats steps through the portal, and then the caption on the next page, inside Harvey Dent. That's yeah. fucked up. That's that real fucked up. <laughs> real fucked up. I loved it. Uh, I think the, uh, the book captures a better sense of what is, in essence, Batman's decay, his descent into his own eldritch form. Uh, the film, it's kind of a sudden transition, but here, like, his skin gets this color that it's not supposed to be. His suit starts to basically fall apart. That's a much more visually satisfying, gradual transition. Yes. Outside of that, I think I'm good. As a final note, I think I like this better than the movie. I think. 
I, I think again with with those two improvements the movie made with removing the gun and making Thomas Wayne more central to the the climax. Yeah. I don't know why I like this better than the movie. I just do. I think it really has to do with a story that is created in one medium is created for that medium. Ah, that's a and very good point. When you do a literal, this close to a literal translation of that, you lose something. It's why as good as the film version of New Frontier is, it's not going to be as good as New Frontier. But it's why, I'm trying to think of a, a really good example of this. The Dark Knight, while not, any one particular Batman story, there's so much of Long Halloween in The Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. But if you tried to do Batman The Long Halloween, the movie, as we saw with the animated movie that was also wildly different, it doesn't work because it took the elements that work, the, the character stuff, but then it creates a film around it. It uses the the medium to tell its own story. And that's what, what comics can do things that even animated films can't. Final, final note, best bat suit of the night. Yes, definitely. Very akin to Gotham by Gaslight, regardless. Because again... I have a feeling like Mignola did the covers. I think Mignola probably did a bunch of the design work for some of the initial stuff here. And thus it would logically have a similar vibe. Yeah. It's got kind of like a policeman's uniform. We got some buttons, very of the period, not too complicated, still a little bit fancy. Seems to work. And with that, it's time for Batman, the doom that came to Gotham on the big board. Well, we are at 255 stories on the big board. Right now, as has been and as shall possibly ever be, up at number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at 50 is Only Takes a Night, the issue where Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle go out on a date. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman Gotham Knights number 32, 24-7. At 100, we have the Doomsday Book, the comic where Batman meets Sherlock Holmes. At 150 is Sisters in Arms, the team-up between Catwoman, Sarah Essen, and Vicky Vale. At 200 is the great Joker Clayface feud. Title says it all. And hey, down at the bottom at 255, it's White Knight. Still terrible. Where do we want to start on this? This is better than both Gotham by Gaslight and Master of the Future, which are at 231 and 237. Uh, that's not saying much, but, you know, that's that's Mignola's other major Elseworld contribution. So that's at least a starting point. Yeah. I'm looking at our other Elseworlds. I mean, our highest Elseworlds is number six. It's it's not (laughs) 
up there. <laughs> no. Then, uh, number six and then number 13. So we, we've got some Elseworlds up pretty high. Big, big fan of the just the vampire trilogy generally. Right. Even the lowest one of them is down at 65. So it, it's not up there. It's better than Dark Joker the Wild, the other one from Mention Jones at 215. This, this does not beat, while not an Elseworlds in the strictest sense of the word, because it was before the branding existed, does not beat Digital Justice at 176. Yeah. You know, again, you got to recognize the ambition. In general, not a lot of ambition tonight. More here than in the next two stories. I am okay with putting this above Holy Terror, only because I know that pretty soon we're going to re-rank Holy Terror and we're going to we're going to move that at least a little bit up. Uh oh. so I think somewhere between uh what would we just say 176 and I, I feel comfortable in saying this cracks the top 200. Yeah. This is a fun little read. Yes. Aside from the gun stuff, which right. is bad. I'm thinking low 180s high 190s i'll take this over noel at 192 yes i was just looking at that don't quite think it beats death in the family at 188 (laughs) it's an important story and it is just so freaking wild how about the new 189 right there under death in the family yeah I will. I would have taken either 189 or 190. I, I will happily go 189. Our second story of the night is Batman Castle of the Bat. This is written by Jack C. Harris with art and colors by Bo Hampton, letters by Tracy Hampton Munsey, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. The cover date is December of 1994. After witnessing the death of his parents, Dr. Bruce Wayne has begun research some would consider unnatural. He wishes to revive the dead, and in attempting to bring his father back and crossing these experiments that create strange animal hybrids, he has created a Batman who will bring to light the truth about the death of the Waynes. The very best thing I can say about this is that it's painted. I fucking love painted comics. I knew you did, and I knew you'd appreciate that. Are you familiar with either of the Hampton brothers, Bo and Scott Hampton? No. They both have done a lot of painted comics. They've both done a bunch of Batman. They both did uh, Legend of the Dark Knight arcs. Uh, Scott Hampton did a three-issue miniseries with Steve Niles called Gotham County Line. That's a horror story. We should have read that already. Niles, I won't say he writes great horror, but he can write some really good horror. His stuff can be great. I mean, the original 30 Days of Night is a classic for a reason. His stuff is never bad, but it can range from kind of okay to really, really good. But yeah, we King. Yeah. We'll we'll add Gotham County line to the the upcoming register. 
I also think Niles did a miniseries with Kelly Jones. Yeah, Kelly Jones, Steve Niles, Gotham After Midnight. 12-issue miniseries, though, so that one's that one's a commitment. I know of Gotham After Midnight. I think I've got the paperback somewhere. Again, we can, we can look into that one, too. But yeah, the art here is really nice. The Hamptons have a really beautiful sensibility to their work. And this one looks real good, real period for that Frankenstein 1800s, the creepy art, the the moors, the trees, the crumbling castle, the village. They picked the right artist to work on this, at times, very overwritten comic. Uh, of of all the multiverse, is this the most pathetic version of Alfred? <laughs> oh, yeah. Because this is literally an Alfred-Igor hybrid. Batman, Bruce Wayne is part Bruce Wayne, part Dr. Frankenstein, and Alfred is part Alfred and part Igor, and got none of Alfred's good traits other than the name and the mustache. And it's uh, it's Alfredo, isn't it? Yes, he is Alfredo. Because... He like it a sauce. Bruce is, I guess, Italian, despite living in Germany, because his Julie Madison analog, who's here, also came from Italy. So my assumption is that Dr. Wayne was Italian, Thomas, and came to teach at this school in Germany. But I don't understand why otherwise they needed to be Italian. It just seemed like, okay, they're Italian. But yeah, he's got uh, he's got the hunchback and everything and uh, doesn't really have any kind of, I don't know, thoughts, no. ideas, dialogue. No. Other than master. Master. Yeah, oh, lots of masters. I think it's fascinating. This is at times remarkably overwritten, while our next story is consistently underwritten. Oh, yeah. So, but we'll, we'll get there with the next one. It's a choice to have a Batman. Bruce Wayne is not Batman. No. Batman here is Thomas. Thomas the Frankenstein's monster. The partially resurrected Thomas Wayne is the Bat-Man. And, you know, when when I first started reading this, and, of course, as, as always, in every single Batman Elseworld, we have to see Thomas and Martha. I think that's contractually required somewhere. Uh, I was thinking, oh, so Bruce is going to die and Thomas is going to resurrect him. Uh, but no, we got the we got the reverse. I thought the same thing because I might not have read this before. Since these were coming out in the the mid-90s, you got to think I'm 13, 14 years old, somewhere there. These were five, six dollar comics when a comic was normally a dollar and a quarter to two dollars. I had a big commitment. Yeah, I had to be choosy with my Elseworlds. As I was reading this one, I'm like, boy, this one might have slipped under the radar for me. So I because I thought the same thing when I was reading. It's like, oh, I guess Thomas is gonna be the one. It's like, oh nope. So yeah, this might have been a first time read for me. I'm in my own head. I'm like, oh yeah, I've read all these Elseworlds. And this one was not familiar. It also could have been forgettable. 
That is the other thing. I will have to go through my collection <laughs> when I'm going through and see. But I will give this one the credit. Aside from Bruce, Alfred, and Jim, there are no other characters from the mythos. And the uh, let's... and the Julie Madison is iffy. They just his his paramour is Julia. So it's sort of Julie Madison-esque. And O'Hara was in the last book, right? Yes. Ah, uh, forgot to mention him. Good to good to see Chief O'Hara, as it always. Is. We'll get there. But yeah, they they really Harris did not depend on the wink at the camera thing that so many else worlds do. It was like, no, I no. want to tell a Frankenstein meets Batman story, and that's what I'm gonna do. But to what I was saying before, when I started saying about a Batman who, and then before saying, wait, no, actually Bruce isn't Batman. It is strange to see a Bruce Wayne so struggling with whether or not to kill. That is so a part of any Batman who isn't evil that you rarely see a Batman struggling with, well, should I or shouldn't I kill? And it's it was also a point to make that it his choice not to kill was less an internal moral choice and more of a I am a doctor, I have agreed to the Hippocratic Oath, so how can I both say that I uphold the Hippocratic Oath and still avenge my father? It's more of a lawful neutral than a lawful good thing yeah this this Bruce Wayne is not a vigilante at all no the only reason that the Batman is taking out highwaymen is because there's enough of Thomas left in the brain that Bruce put into the monster that oh highwaymen killed him so he is reflexively killing the thing that killed him but there isn't a Batman as we view the character here. I thought it was a little strange that we went to a Batman that transforms into a man bat. And we have Bruce's experimentation on animals. This might be my lack of knowledge of the original Frankenstein showing, but I thought that was a little too weird, a little too out there. I read Frankenstein last in college, so it has been a minute. But there are not, as I recall, anything other than the monster. Victor was not experimenting on animals, too, and creating sewn-together animals. Yeah, the the animal energies and Bruce talking about, like, oh, if you would... If you take the energy of the bat, you put it in the energy of the dog, it becomes the world's, you know, best, you know, night tracker. Like that was, that was strange. And then when the, you know, the reanimated Thomas Wayne turns into basically man bat, that was strange. But boy, did it look good. Well, of course it looked good. I was really like, wow, I wish they had gotten Bo Hampton to do a Man Bat miniseries where we got lots of Man Bat. Every artist who is good at horror should be contractually obligated to do a Man Bat series. We need, speaking of Elseworlds, we need to do the Jamie Delano, John Bolton Man Bat at some point. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm here for it. Bruce here is 
so not what we're used to in a Bruce Wayne in any story, but also has certain hallmarks of a Bruce Wayne. The obsession is so very Bruce. The fact that he has this scientific plan and he is willing to throw everything away for it is very Bruce. Only here it's mad science and not mad vigilantism. And this is a this is another one of the things that you don't like in a story. Uh, the Wayne's murder was part of a conspiracy. Yep, two in a row. <laughs> I'm a little. I'm able to deal with it a little more in an Elseworlds. Yeah, I don't want it in canon, and I even didn't mind it so much in Doom that came to Gotham because Robert Queen is just a nut. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a part of this larger creepy cult thing. This amounted to like a dispute over university ethics. Yes, and, and could a professor who was rich enough just yeah, let me just pay for all my own research? I suppose they could. I don't think there'd be anything that would be against it. Yeah, if you were not using university resources, but then they would come along and say, well. All of that time you're devoting in your own lab, you should be spending in our lab. But then there's also the idea of like, well, gee, what if you just said it was an outside grant and the grant was from you and you could do it that way. But grants are really just, you know, PR for the university and free money. So, yeah, I feel like in the contemporary university system, they would frown on what Bruce was doing. Also, the it would never pass IRB. IRB Institutional Review Board. Ah. Ethics and whatnot. Oh yeah. I, I somehow don't think resurrecting the dead is ever gonna pass anything like that because it's way too sticky a wicket. Yeah, stealing the um humors and whatnot from the living in order to preserve dead tissue. Nah, not gonna fly. And then we get to the end, and yes, we learn that this is all part of a conspiracy. And it has been this professor, other professor all along. He gives Bruce all this shit about Bruce's experiments. Wouldn't you have thought he would have the first thing, oh, this guy's as crazy as I am. I should bring him in on my experiments too. His whole science for science's sake argument would make me think he would have seen a kindred spirit in Bruce. Yeah. That was some weird stuff going on there. It could have been a little bit neater, like thinking of him as a rival, thinking of him, uh, you know, Bruce maybe going to out him to the university. That could have been some tidier storytelling there. Also, it was a bit contrived how Alfredo just falls in through a hole into this chamber where there's keeping all of the the various body parts and whatnot uh, that then Bruce uh, then pilfers. Yeah, I don't... It's not a bad book, but it's just got some weird, very convenient beats. Harris has written a handful of Batman stories over the years. Had a, a brief run on Detective for about a year, but yeah, lots of he has a, a lot of very scattered credits. A few issues. 
Uh, uh, the, his longest run is about two years on Superman Family, but mostly it's you know three issues of this, four issues of this. His run on Detective was four eighty four to four ninety five. Wonder if that was even the leads because that was the period when Detective was the big anthology book. No, it looks like he was doing backups. He wasn't even doing the Batman story in there. Oh, he was doing uh, Jim Gordon and Batgirl, Batgirl stories. He did a, a bat a run on Batgirl backups. Huh. Ba- some Batgirl backups, some Robin backups. Interesting. I don't know if making this more of a Batman story would have made it any better i think part of the thing that is interesting and fun about it is that it is not a traditional batman story a traditional batman elseworlds where bruce wayne becomes batman to avenge the death of his parents and blah 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 blah, blah and it's just set in a quirky time i would have wanted to see from this book more of thomas's awakening right he doesn't have to have this ability to monologue but you should have had the sense of body horror and Thomas being ashamed at Bruce for what he's done, being some recognition of why did you do this? This is, I am an abomination. Especially because Thomas, as we saw him before his death, was kind of an asshole. Yeah. Like they're coming back after he's been promoted. What? Do you want to be an actor? How dare you? And that, took me off guard initially because the play that Bruce is quoting is A Midsummer Night's Dream. That's an odd choice with something so gothic. I mean, sure, you do Shakespeare, but you you do Macbeth. You do something with gravitas. And then by the end, I'm like, oh, Bottom gets transformed into the animal man, into the man with the ass head. So by the end, when Thomas turns into a man bat, it's like, ah, that's why you went with Midsummer. Okay, I-, I can see that using my degree in Shakespeare. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's an interesting angle that's just kind of abandoned, right? Certainly, they make it clear that oh, there's some part of Thomas in there. That's why he's going after these these highwaymen. You get the conclusion at the end where he says "son," but you could have done so much more in there, like. Again, I, I, you can't have a Frankenstein that's monologuing everywhere, but man, it's well, a good place to to have some 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 of that body horror. Love that body horror. Here's the thing, though, in the book, the monster doesn't shut up. <laughs> it is. It does have intellect, and it talks and talks and talks. So if you went with the more traditional original Frankenstein, oh yeah, he could talk but a little less recognizable because we all associate Frankenstein with Boris Karloff, not Basil Karloff. Different guy, model off of the other one. Different. Uh, But then, yeah, I guess if you have a Thomas who can talk, you get to the the conclusion a bit quickly. Yeah. And and our our Dr. Seltzum, our, our villain here, in the end actually had his lab set with a self-destruct. Really? Is he a Bond villain? Is he Dr. Doofenshmirtz from Phineas and Ferb who put the self-destruct button on all of his innators? 
Aha! You see, if the villagers ever come and discover this, I have it set to explode. And of course, we do get a whole a mob with pitchforks and torches because it's a pre-Victorian era village full of villagers or, you know, Springfield on The Simpsons. You, you can get a mob together real quick in either of those places. A favorite creepy detail of mine on this, the various highwaymen who work for Seltzum, the masks he gives them are skinned faces, which, ugh. Oh, yeah. Nice touch. It's a real nice touch. And again, really well drawn. I think that's about it on this one for me. I got nothing left, so that means it's time for Batman Castle of the Bats on the big board. I'll say it right now. I do not believe either of these, this or the next story go above Doom that came to Gotham. No. So we are, we're squarely in the 200s here. Um, yes. But neither of them go in the, you know, the dregs. The, no. oof, these are offensive and bad. I feel like this one is better than the next one. Just because, yes. uh, uh, I mentioned earlier, the ambition. Uh, this yes. is nominally more than the next one. I think we're somewhere in the two teens. Yeah. I put this above, we'll say, Bruce Wayne, not super. And that also includes Dark Joker, the Wild, 215 and 216. I think you were looking at the exact spot I was looking at. I think right in between Faith and Bruce Wayne, not super is the spot for this book. There we go. The new 215. There we go. Oh, bat suit rating. Don't see too much of it. Meh. It's very shadowed throughout because... This is a really shadowy book. Like the art is, the painting is very heavy on shadows. So, and the monster is usually in shadow. So yeah, we don't, we don't see a ton of it. Our final story is Batman Mask. This is story and art by Mike Grell. Colors by Andre Kromoff. Letters by John Costanza. And edited by Mike Carlin, Denny O'Neill, and Darren Vincenzo. Cover date is 1997. I could not find a month. In a Victorian-era Gotham, Bruce Wayne has fallen in love with young ballerina Laura Avian, but he is not the only one. As accidents befall those who stand between Laura and her rise to fame, Batman must find the Phantom who is responsible for these crimes. I want to start with the bat suit in this one and to say that it's ass. It is absolute ass. It's nothing but black. And I'm like, I'm I'm just saying it's a black silhouette. There's no details. There's no nothing. It's black with just a giant bat logo. It is quite possibly the laziest bat suit I have ever seen. And not a cowl, but a domino bat mask across his eyes. But there's no full bat cowl to it. It was a really odd choice i could see someone be like i want to do something really distinct from other batman costumes but this wasn't the way to go with it no and it's literally just a a void on the page i feel like you can't get away with that this boy did this one read quick there are a ton of two-page spreads in this book with minimal dialogue. Mike Grell was showing off his artistry in this book 
And so the story is very simple and there's a lot that could have been expanded on to make the story more interesting. It's not any kind of suspense or surprise. We know that for sure. So in case you couldn't tell if from the, the synopsis, this is Batman and Phantom of the Opera. This is Batman in the place of Raul. And what you figure out pretty damn quick is Harvey Dent slash Two-Face as the Phantom. Phantom of the Opera is a deeply problematic story when looked at from a modern context. And Andrew Lloyd Webber has spent 20 plus years, Phantom of the Opera, as of this recording, finally closed on Broadway within the past two weeks. But really, when you think about what Phantom of the Opera is... Fan of the Opera is Incel Stalk's pretty opera singer. He's a stalker. Yeah. And all the romantic, you know, oh, but he loves her so and he wants her to sing. He's a stalker. He's killing people around her. He's not a good guy at all. And here, yes, it's it's the ballet and not the opera. But you know, here it, it's never you're never meant to really sympathize with Harvey slash the Phantom. Because the story is not that deep. No, not at all. And you just, you see so little of any of these characters. And you see so little of Bruce, who at the beginning, throughout, there's this lip service to him, you know, wondering, you know, am I the mask or is the mask a part of me or this and that? But it's all so surface also befuddling coloring choice the ballet that they're performing is a version of poe's mask of the red death and the red death dresses in purple yeah of course and by the way that is a connection to phantom of the opera as the phantom appears in both the book and the musical and everything as the red death at a celebration at the opera so it's it's a very intentional nod to the source material there. But he's the purple death here. And I, I don't entirely know why he isn't wearing red as he's the red death. There's very little to this story. I mean, the Batman costume, not great. The colorist, color choices, weird. The general art is good. Grell does a really nice job of showing the ballet and the dance of it all. But you could have taken away one or two of the two-page spreads of dancers dancing and gotten a little more into Bruce's head or made Laura Avian a character or spent more time with Harvey. Something. I mean, like, he he has a point to make by the time you get to the end. And I, I thought the, the end was a it was an interesting decision and i i thought it read pretty well to me just batman deciding i belong here i belong in this cave of of oddities and and misery i am not fit for the outside world like that's a pretty dark place to leave bruce wayne i gotta wonder and, and this is a thought and maybe it's a really dumb one but in the digital transfer of this book it feels like we lose something as we transition from these nice two-page spreads to the single pages and i can't quite figure out what it is 
maybe I just get you get so in a flow of reading the two page spreads, which normally I hate, but I thought here they worked pretty well. All of the one pagers seem just like the dimensions aren't right. It's almost some kind of like forced aspect ratio deal. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I thought visually the two page spreads worked much better than the one pages. So I don't I don't know what that is. I would have to dig out my physical copy on this one. I agree. I thought the ending was good. And I think Harvey's railing against Bruce as they have their final, and by final, I mean only fight in this story is good, but it feels like it both took so long to get to that confrontation and not enough time at all. Because there's very little Batman action in this story. Yeah, and... Like, we could have spent a little more time with Harvey at least getting a sense of why he's doing any of this. Like, yes, quite clearly, like, he was replaced, he's angry, he's disfigured, you know, he's not going to be the the dashing, handsome man that uh, that he was. But we could see him express some of that. We get that one scene in the sanatorium where he's, you know, yelling at folks like, oh, oh, yeah, I, I can't teach, they're just going to gawk at me. Uh, I tell you what, buddy, they gawk at me all the time. But, you know, we could have gotten, like you said, we could have gotten more with Harvey at at the very least. Because he appears in the first scene before he is disfigured, into the scene where he is disfigured. There's that one scene. And other than that, he's mostly in the shadows killing people, except for the one scene where he dances with Laura. And then is the final scene. You get no understanding of him as a character other than that rage and what i thought we were set up here pretty well for was a dent who is more directly mad at batman we have seen two faces who are less or more mad at batman you know depending on the the tragedy that befell them batman 89 for example we just read uh, not for the show, but for the for the column, like we have a Batman, or excuse me, we have a dent that fixates on Batman. Like, oh, he's getting all, and with Bruce Wayne actually more. Oh, Bruce Wayne is getting all of this hero attention and love. That should have been me. I should be the one beloved in Gotham. This is a Batman that more or less directly leads to his disfigurement. Like, right, we should have a Harvey, and I know you got to do the story of him being obsessed with the production, but there should be something of, uh, I'm going to destroy this play and then i'm going to destroy the batman because he has cursed me with this melted face or he should have been going after bruce wayne because he is obsessed with laura and she is with bruce wayne the phantom repeatedly threatens raul the man who christine is actually with in phantom of the opera and a batman versus Eric, the Phantom of the Opera, the character from the book, would have been, I think, much more interesting than cobbling Two-Face into that position. Because Eric is a genius inventor who invents death traps and trapdoors and all these contraptions and weapons. He's the kind of guy who would fight Batman. Uh, uh, but you see, Matt, Two Face has got a uh, a fucked up face. He just he slots right there into the story, so we we got to go with Two Face, as opposed to using the character from the book that you're riffing on, who would have made an interesting counterpoint to Batman. The the 
guy who wears his mask so he can present himself out in society versus the guy who could be out in society without his mask, but instead chooses to wear one to go about in the darkness that would make for a really logical contrast. Uh, Two-Face got, got the fucked up face, like the Phantom. We're going to, we're going to do that one. We're going to do that one instead. You know, I feel like this is one of those get the fuck out of my office moments (laughs) where, you know, I'm pitching one story. Mike Grell is pitching the other as I'm pitching Batman versus the Phantom of the Opera. And he's, pitching this and the editor keeps but but two-face got the fucked up face and two-face two got the fucked up face man let's do it and i just keep going but but the phantom and he's like but yeah he's like, get the fuck out of my office mike growl do your thing i i mean seriously like that's that's the the nugget of the story right two-face as phantom of the opera yeah because yeah. you know he's got a disfigured face that's right. it that's all we got here we have some very nice art the bits in the bat cave, the moment where Laura unmasks him, the fashion of the whole thing. As sick to death as I am of those pearls. Ah, those bloody pearls. The use of them here that Bruce has had collected them and gave them to Laura, and she wears them until he drives her away and she tears them off and leaves them broken and scattered is a really good visual metaphor. It's one of the best uses of the pearls since the original use of the friggin' pearls or Darwin Cook using them as sort of a giant prop in Ego. But once again, we don't have any of the character development to support these profound moments. Yeah, and we spend like little bits of time with the ballet producers and the prima ballerina that... Two-Face takes out so Laura can step up. We spend no time with the principal dancer who took Harvey's place. And it would have been a thing to give some of the other characters in this world some personality. Something. Even Bruce, Harvey, and Laura don't have a ton of personality. Alfred's there. Gordon is Gordon and O'Hara are there for one scene. And boy, this this Chief O'Hara is straight out of your, you know, 1900. He's got the, the, the big policeman's hat and he's got a Stafford rep accent. You can tell. Oh, of course. Of course. Oh, shit. He had the, he had the line. Where'd it go? Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Yep. That is a stereotypical Irishman. There's not enough there there for this story. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's the best encapsulation you can put on it. It doesn't have enough to be offensive. It doesn't have enough to be inspirational. It doesn't have enough. Yeah, it's it's it just was kind of flat. Some pretty art with a not great Batman costume. And this one will fade from my recollection because this is what I know I read. And when I got back to it, it's like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember this. Yeah, 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 kind of. And it's interesting because Grell is a he's he's a writer artist in general who started out as an artist. But he has a really long run on Green Arrow that is really well regarded. He's not a writer who tends to underwrite like this. 
So I was surprised going back to this because when I read this, this probably would have been the first thing by Mike Grell I was exposed to. So I was like, oh, I'm really curious to read this again, knowing who Grell is. And it just did not wow me. Well, I think on that note, it's time for Batman Mask on the Big Board. So this is definitely not in the 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 dregs in that forties that are painful. Oh. I think I think we got to decide: is it better than Gotham by Gaslight, or only very slightly worse than Gotham by Gaslight? Because this this is better than, as you just said, uh, the two forties. This is better than. Tales from the Dark Multiverse Hush at 241. Oh, yeah. Gotham by Gaslight, while there are numerous issues with it, that has the ambition of being theoretically the first Elseworlds, even though it was before the branding. That was a let's take a shot and do something really different. This has none of that ambition. No. If that is our measure, it definitely then belongs right with Case of the Chemical Syndicate, which is, hey, we've got this new character, but let's basically just write a The Shadow story and take off the hat and give him a cowl with pointy ears. No offense to Bill Finger, but Bob Kane didn't give him much to work with there, and so he just wrote the first story that was... I don't think it was a shadow... That was literal. I don't think he literally wrote a shadow story and then made it just changed the name Shadow to Batman. But he scratch, hadn't scratch, 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 scratch. But he hadn't found Batman's voice as a character in that story. And it reads like a shadow So you want to do 240 or 241? I think 241. I think if, if push comes to shove and those two stories are next to each other, Case of the Cumberland Syndicate is at least the first Batman story. Yeah. So we have a new floor for this is. Not good by any stretch, but this is not terrible. Everything after Batman Mask is terrible except for one for last, reason or another. Except for last Batman story, that will be another one that we will be adjusting in the not too distant Ah, uh, yeah, we'll we'll rescue that. It deserves better. But truth in advertising, Batman three hundred. Right, precisely. Yeah, looking at above, like there's even stuff. Everything even from like 230, everything from 232 down now to 241 is, oh, these are some fundamentally dull or even no higher. I think everything from 227 down has some deep flaw or another to it, but is not offensive. We'll be discussing ranking in a, a, about in a couple months. Uh, as, as we creep closer and closer to episode 100, we're at 86. We're we're right there. We're, we're really getting there. You keep plugging along, doing one episode a week. Tick tock. Time marches on. Does it ever. But that does it for this week. Next week, we travel into the shadows with three stories of the League of Assassins. Ooh. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote. June, conduit of outdated joke names. Jen, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov fangirl, 
Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bye, Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sraggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.